Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Scaling disorders can be very difficult because you can get scale as a secondary problem, having lots of infection, certain parasites, the epidermal barrier being affected, but it also can be a primary issue like with certain keratinization disorders. Sebaceous adenitis is a disease that is not uncommon but is not super common at the same time. And I think it can be really difficult in some of these cases because they can have a history of other skin diseases like allergies or they've previously been treated as a pet with allergies. And so it's really important when we talk about some of these disorders that we really start to recognize the differences. Um, we often see allergies overdiagnosed. Any pet who's itchy, any pet who's, you know, kind of scaly or their skin looks abnormal is assumed to be allergic. Now, sebaceous adenitis in itself is not a super paritic disease. However, they can get secondary infections and we know that can cause a dog to be very paritic. Um, And I have had some cases where the scale and the follicular casting gets really tight together and just like us kind of having really dry skin, you can still have some pets who are paritic. So I wanna go over some of the subtle differences we can see in these cases um, so that you can start to know what to look out for when you are in the clinic. So granulomatous sebaceous adenitis, we often just call it sebaceous adenitis or SA. It's a disease we don't exactly know that much about, which is true for lots of autoimmune diseases, unfortunately, in pets. Um, But we do know there are some breed predilections, and so it's assumed there has to be some sort of genetic component. By far and away, the poster child for sebaceous adenitis is going to be a standard poodle. So if you have a you know younger and middle-aged standard poodle coming in and they have a poor hair coat, maybe they're not that itchy, they've, they just kind of look a little scaly, SA or sebaceous adenitis should be really, really high up on your list. There are other breeds that we can see with this as well. Akitas, that is definitely a breed I have seen in the clinic and one that can be predisposed. Vishlas um, can get sebaceous adenitis. So it's important to recognize there are a lot of predisposed breeds. So if I see a standard poodle, an Akita, a Vishla come in and they've kind of got a poor hair coat, they don't show me typical signs of allergies. Like they don't really lick or chew their paws. Um, then I would definitely have sebaceous adenitis as a potential differential. Now it's still important to do your basic diagnostics before we jump to something like biopsy. So depending on the case, we want to do a skin scraping because certain mites, demeticosis, I mean, can um, cause a lot of follicular involvement and hair loss too, especially in a younger pet. So that can be something really important to rule out, especially if they're not on something like an isoxazoline for their normal prevention. And of course, doing our cytologies, you know I'm going to want you to do cytologies um, because we do want to identify infection. If that pet does have a really significant pyoderma, it could be worth taking, you know, some time to clear that up before we biopsy because if you think about it, 
sebaceous adenitis, we're talking about the sebaceous gland being affected. If you biopsy this disease when it, it's a very active state, like it's got a lot of inflammation happening around the sebaceous glands, the pathologist is really just going to see a lot of inflammation, right? Like a folliculitis. Well, infection can do that as well. Dermatophyte can do that. You know, Demodex can do that. Lots of things can do that. So that's why making sure that infection is controlled can be really important. So I have had cases where I say, eh, let's treat this infection for, you know, a few weeks, get that under control. And then if we're still seeing a lot of these abnormalities, we'll plan on biopsying the skin at that point. So doing your basic diagnostics can be really important and every case is different, but just have in the top of your mind skin scraping, you know, DTM, those basic things to evaluate. Now, if I see the, especially one of these specific breeds, and remember these doodly mixes we have, you know, they have poodle in them, so they can be predisposed as well. So I've had some labradoodles that I've diagnosed with this disease. Um, there are some hallmarks that can give you really strong suspicion that you are dealing with sebaceous adenitis. Um, so we've talked about the breeds, but also if you just look at their skin and they have scaling, but they have something called follicular casting. Um, and that kind of just looks like heavy, um, thicker scale that's essentially adhered to the hair follicle and the hair itself. And so it, you'll kind of pull out some of these hairs and they'll just have a lot of this like matting of kind of scale and debris. And I'll try to put some pictures up with the social media post that goes up with this. Um, but that's a pretty big hallmark of sebaceous adenitis is that they'll get this follicular casting. And you can kind of see the lesions really anywhere throughout the body. But when I think of the cases I've seen, it's a lot of truncal lesions, you know, potentially going down the limbs in some cases, the head, um, you know, kind of diffusely being affected. You can get more focal areas of it, especially if you keep, if you catch the disease really early. But usually by the time at least we see them in our specialty clinic, they'll kind of be diffusely affected throughout the trunk and, you know, maybe the head and have some follicular casting down their limbs. I don't tend to see it a lot, you know, around the paws. Um, you know, it's not going to affect mucous membranes, things like that. But really wherever there is hair and there could be sebaceous glands um, has the possibility to be free game. So biopsy is really important to diagnose these. And a couple things I want to make sure you recognize. Um, take multiple samples. So we are not just going to take one single site in a pet who's diffusely affected. I'm almost always taking, you know, four. Like that's probably a pretty common number for me in diffusely affected diseases. I'm going to get areas that do have, you know, some of that heavy follicular casting or scaling or hair loss. Um, I also tend to take bigger biopsy punches. So I'm not going to take like a two millimeter biopsy punch. Like in a bigger dog, I'm going to take a six to eight millimeter biopsy punch of these areas. Um, I really want to maximize the chance that my dermatopathologist is going to be able to diagnose this disease. Now, on that point, it is really important that you send these samples to someone who specializes in dermatopathology because there's kind of a couple different ways that we can see these as, as far as the staging of the disease. Um, you can see like what we talked about, the really kind of active stage. There's a lot of inflammation around the sebaceous glands, around the hair follicle. But there's also more chronic phases where essentially that biopsy 
almost looks pretty normal. Like there's actually not a lot of inflammation that's happening. Um, but there's just no sebaceous glands. And if you don't, have someone who really specifically is used to looking at skin and would kind of think about the fact that that looks normal, but there's no sebaceous glands, it could easily be missed and come back as, you know, non-diagnostic. So it's really, really important that if you're describing these lesions, you kind of tell them the breed, you tell them what the skin's looking like, but also sending it to someone who's really specialized in it because if we're going to put the finances, you know, for the owner into a biopsy, we really want to maximize the chance that we get a good result. Um, and so say we do our biopsy and we, you know, we get back a sebaceous adenitis. How do we treat it? What do we do? Well, there are lots of treatment options, which can be daunting, I know, um, but can be a good thing as well. So first of all, topical therapy is extremely important. Essentially what we do to treat these pets is a lot of times, unless they get infected, they're not that bothered by it. You know, their skin quality is just not good. They cosmetically don't look good. Um, but they are susceptible to infections. And like we talked about, occasionally you can get a dog who, you know, is uncomfortable. And it just affects the owner's quality of life to have a pet that has really severe lesions like this. Um, and so essentially by topical therapy, you are trying to replenish that skin and act as those sebaceous glands. I mean, you are doing the work of a sebaceous gland. The beautiful thing about topical therapy, um, you know, very well tolerated, very safe, minimal side effects. The downside is time and commitment. It is not a bathe your dog once a month type of treatment. You are doing really diligent topical therapy. So it's really important that you talk to your owners and make sure that they're committed and that they're okay uh, doing something like that. And like I said, there's there's lots of potential treatment options and it really, to me, kind of depends on what the owner's able to do and what they feel really comfortable doing. Um, so, you know, fatty acids, whether it's systemic or topical fatty acids, using, using something like Dermacent, um, you know, once to twice weekly can be helpful in these cases. Um, using uh, topically alpha carry oil. So alpha carry oil is something that's really um, inexpensive and easy to get and you can create a mixture using alpha carry oil. It makes them incredibly um, greasy and it can be incredibly messy to do um, but it's something that can be really really um, helpful. It kind of occludes, moisturizes the skin, you let it sit on the skin for a long period of time and then rinse it off and there's lots of different protocols of how you can use that um, another thing that can be really simple to get online and pretty inexpensive um, is actually propylene glycol. So propylene glycol is something that's used very commonly um, in human medicine. And it's something that you can actually create a spray with. So, you know, you can do different formulations of 50% to 75% of propylene glycol in water. And you can have them spray or rinse their dog, you know, once daily, once every other day. We'll be more aggressive as far as time, how often we do it in the beginning. But when they stabilize, you can definitely try to pull back the frequency um, and see if that's helpful for them. Another product I like using in a lot of these dogs is the new Duxo S3 subline. So I've had owners that, you know, once or twice a week will bathe with the Duxo sub. I have a poodle recently um, who, you know, life got crazy with holidays and family and they kind of pulled back on their bathing and really didn't do it. And that was the only change in this big 
you know, poodle mix started to flare pretty badly. So it really can be helpful. And the Duxo Sub line is the one that I tend to use in these cases. The mousse that's also Duxo Sub, I will use focally. So if we have, you know, a big dog, but maybe there's a couple areas in the trunk that we tend to struggle with and we'll bathe with the product, but we'll also use the mousse focally, like kind of in between baths. And so I find that really helpful as well. Um, so there's others, there's lots of topical things you can do, but those are some of the main ones that I tend to stick to. Now, as far as other options, systemically, um, one of the main things that we tend to use in the clinic is cyclosporin. So cyclosporin, um, it has been shown to kind of limit some of that inflammation um, that's happening with the sebaceous glands and actually help regenerate sebaceous glands. I think it depends personally on what stage of the disease you're dealing with. If you're kind of in that more active stage or there is inflammation and sebaceous glands salvage, um, I think it can be helpful. If it's been going on for a really, really, really long period of time and essentially you have one of those biopsies that has virtually no sebaceous glands and no inflammation, um, personally, I don't think they tend to respond as well, but something that always can be worth trying, especially if you do have an owner who really can't commit to the topical therapy. Um, synthetic retinoids have also kind of been mentioned historically. They can be difficult to give and people don't really use those as a first line option as much anymore, but just to know the literature um, will be supportive of that. It is essential, just like any other, you know, 98% of dermatology diseases, to really talk to the, about, to the owner about expectations. Um, it is a lifelong disease. You might be able to pull back on some of the frequency of the topical, like I mentioned, but it is a very um, time-consuming committal disease that these owners have to know, that this is lifelong. Topical therapy is going to be extremely important. Um, you know, I always tell owners, like anything else, I don't need them perfect, but we can improve them. We can have a good quality of life. We can minimize infection. I don't expect a lot of these cases to 100 percent grow all their hair back, but we often can help restore some of that. We can reduce the amount of infections they're having. We can limit the follicular casting and we can just really improve their epidermal barrier. And it can take trial and error. Some owners are willing to do tons of these things all at once. Some we really have to kind of step into. Um, we kind of ask them, can you bathe? Can you do these things? How do you feel about systemic therapy versus topical. I'm usually somewhere in the middle with both. So it is something that you can find lots of topical protocols on, but I think, you know, using the topical fatty acids like the Dermacent, the alpha carry oil, the propylene glycol, um, using some of these really good products we have like the Duxo um, S3 sub shampoo and mousse can be really beneficial and the potentially cyclosporin kind of depending on how big the dog is, cost concerns the owners may have, where we're at in the disease. Um, you can manage these dogs completely topically if the owner's willing to be committed to it. So I hope you guys find that really helpful. It's a disease I've actually seen a couple times recently in the clinic and I've had some questions about in my Derm Nerds group. So I just figured I'd give you guys a little overview of that. If you are enjoying these kind of short podcasts that kind of target a certain disease for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I would love for you to leave a review. When you guys review the podcast and give it good ratings, you have no idea how much that really helps. I mean, I've been doing the podcast now for over two years, kind of just on my own, putting it out there. And it is organically grown because of you guys. And it's because you do things like rate it and share it. 
that stuff helps more than you realize. When you guys share it on social media, when we put the clips up, um, we can reach more people and that allows me to devote more time to it. So I have to say thank you for those of you who do that, um, but also encourage you to do it if you enjoy this, just so we can spread more of the derm knowledge.